Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. And this is Steve's PhD, episode 13, Writing Yet Again. So, last episode, you may recall that I started looking at writing my thesis in a serious way. Emphasis on the word started there. And since last episode, a second article of mine, peer-reviewed of course, has finally hit the streets. And then, out of the blue, someone sent around an invitation for contributions to what is known in the academic trade as a compendium, and what's known to nearly everyone else as a book. If the book chapter works out, that's three publications, which is pretty good street cred in PhD circles, and makes it difficult for a thesis review committee to give you a hard time. Although it's rare that a review committee will knock anyone back, at least anyone who's got far enough to actually submit a thesis, it often happens that the committee will send your thesis back a few times for various tweaks and revisions. But with three publications under your belt, there can reasonably come a point where you can give them a look to say, hey, guys, I'm published. Anyway, with not only a thesis, but also an extraneous chapter submission now due, I really should be writing, like hard. Trouble is, the thought of it almost immediately sends me looking for household chores. For example, I'll be writing today just after I've sanded back all the kitchen spatulas. There was an incident with a fried egg the other week. And now that I think about it, it's probably time I deionized some more water for the iron. They say tap water's okay now, but then they say a lot of things. Although I do a fair bit of it, I'm usually the first to admit that writing is a bit of a drag. At least until it's done, at which point you can enjoy that momentary smugness of achieving something until you realise that there's something else you have to write next. And it's about then that you also realise you're overdue to autoclave the dishwasher filters. Anyhow, the book chapter, when I get to it, is my next challenge. In the world of academia, you can write a whole book by yourself, which is known as a monograph, and which is a bit like a PhD thesis, except with less forms to fill in. But there are also books called compendiums. A compendium is essentially a collection of essays on a common theme, which are all pulled together into a coherent whole by a clever editor. I am taking a gamble that I can actually write the sort of chapter that a book editor is going to like. It is my first time. But heck, even if it's not accepted, I can just massage the content into the thesis. Big writing projects of this kind do usually involve a lot of repurposing. Anyway, after skillfully building up all this suspense, hey, did I mention I'm a writer, you are no doubt desperate to know just what this book chapter is about. So, 
If there's been any point to my PhD so far, it's been about trying to exchange anecdotes for data. For example, in the last three years, I have completely trashed the original premise of my thesis, which was that science students were getting a raw deal in the big push to send university students overseas. It turns out that although science students are in the minority of Australian students travelling overseas, they are also in the minority of all Australian students that there are. Indeed, when you count it all up, which is what I've been doing for the last three years, about 20% of all Australian university students are science students, and about 20% of all Australian university students who study abroad are science students. So, science students are in a Goldilocks zone, being neither under or overrepresented in the National Study Abroad Statistics. And so it turns out that my PhD has identified a non-problem and my dreams of becoming Dr. Steve Nellick, science hero, have been dashed. I'm now just hoping to become another dumb hack with a PhD. Anyhow, truth through data is the main point of the book chapter that I'm writing. While everyone else in the book will be doing chapters on the pedagogy, the andragogy, the etiology and the epistemology of studying abroad, I will be doing the data. First I set the scene by discussing how data do not grow on trees. Imagine Department A gets a government grant to send some of its students overseas. The university administrators need a paper trail about how the money gets spent, so the department dutifully keeps records about how many students it sends and to where. Then Department B wants to get in on the act. The university says, OK, you can have a grant too, but you've got to keep the same records that Department A is keeping. And then Department C wants to get in on the act and so on. Eventually, the government steps in and says, hey, you're spending all this money on these trips. What's going on? There's a hurried departmental meeting, and the university decides to pull all its records together so it can tell the government that the university as a whole sent a total of 500 students overseas last year. A third went to Asia, another third went to the Americas, and another third went to Europe. They all learnt a bit about the world, and they also gained credit points towards their degree. This is what we are calling a 21st century global education. A government minister gets wind of this, and thinks gold. A press release goes out saying how the government is committed to global education in the 21st century, and therefore it sent 500 students out to the four corners of the world to learn about how the world works, but without losing any time in completing their degrees, so that they can quickly join Australia's new globally engaged 21st century workforce. After that, it's not just departments, but whole universities wanting to get in on the act, 
each learning that there's a story to be told in numbers, and suddenly there's talk of targets and league tables, and universities are competing against each other to see who can send the most students. And so you suddenly discover you've got yourself a national study abroad database. The moral of this story is that data doesn't just happen, and when it does happen, it's almost never for the purpose of research. But once a data collection exists, data geeks like myself with propellers on their caps can dive in, build spreadsheets, draw up charts and tables, and start telling the story of who's going where, as well as who isn't going anywhere. From there, you can then dig down further to try and discover why the ones who are going go, and why the ones who aren't going aren't. So, having opened the chapter by explaining why there's data in the first place, the chapter then goes on to discuss different ways that you can cut the data to tell different stories, and what other data may be already out there that you might be able to correlate your data against. So essentially, the chapter is trying to tell the story of not only what we know, but how we know what we know. To tell the story of what we know, the chapter does outline a few of my research findings. For example, it turns out that part-time students don't go overseas nearly as much as full-time students. I've also found that students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, that is, the great and rich, also don't go overseas much. That's not to say that none of them go, just proportionally less of them go. It's also the case that people make lots of claims as to the value gained from studying abroad, most of which are just anecdotes. It's been said that studying abroad gives you an improved grade point average, and also that people who study abroad graduate more quickly than those who don't. Well, not so fast. Students who do study abroad nearly always do it late in their degree program, so they would have already built up most of their higher than average grade points before they ever went overseas. The claim that study abroaders graduate earlier may also be a case of mixing correlation with causation since it implies that students who didn't study overseas had been keeping pace with the ones who did up until the point the plane took off. So really, these claims look a bit like selection bias. Students who have a higher grade point average and are on track to finish their degrees quickly are also the students who are more likely to study abroad. It's not the studying abroad that made them that way, It's the way that they are that made them study abroad. Not that there's anything wrong with that. So there you go. Even if education theory isn't really a science, it still requires critical thinking. It also demands evidence and a plausible rationale. And importantly, a healthy dose of common sense. Steve Nerlich, PhD Candidate.